Okay. So I first, the first thing I want to mention is that this class is sponsored in honor of the name um, Sima Bas Yehoshua David. It's her yard site, Tesvav Sivan. And um, this class should um, be in Sechos uh, of the Her Neshama should have an Aliyah. And we are going to be learning in her memory. And okay, so here's what's up. I feel like last week I threw a lot of information at you and because I was rushing a little, it was like a little fast. So officially I could have done chapter 20 and 21 together. They're really, really like a direct continuation, but I chose not to, even though our class might be a little shorter, it might be not as much information, but I think slowing it down a little bit and giving us time to just assimilate all this information and process. And if there's questions, we're going to do it that way. I figured better, you know, spread it out and end a little early if we need to, then try to cram in two chapters, even though they're very much connected. So that's what I chose to do. Remember, remember what I said about these chapters 18 through 26, we are really delving into some some deep concepts, um, concepts that are elaborated much more in the second book of Tanya called Shari Chirva That's really where these concepts are really kind of addressed more. There are many, many Tanya teachers who kind of skim over these chapters and do like a combination of like 18 through 26, just to give us a brief, brief overview. I chose not to do that because I feel like there are a lot of powerful concepts in these chapters that I feel can be really beneficial for us. But I do want you to understand that it's big, it's a lot. And the other thing I want you to understand is I, I don't know if I've, I've said this in this Tanya class, I think I have, but I'm not sure. Understanding the workings of Hashem and understanding how we're, we're gonna talk about today, which is the non-duality of Hashem, that Hashem is everything is something that a finite brain is not gonna be able to fully, fully, fully comprehend. So we're gonna hit the wall, right? Eventually we're gonna we're gonna hit the wall and we're gonna be like, I don't get that. It doesn't make sense to me. How could that be? And that's where our faith kicks in, right? We have our, our foundation of our relationship with Hashem needs to be somewhat with faith. You cannot have a relationship with Hashem if you don't let go and have faith and, and understand that you're not going to understand it all. It's just not possible. We're trying to understand something infinite and we're finite beings. So I just, I always want to remind ourselves of that because even when I'm preparing, I'm like, whoa, like this is overwhelming and this is hard and I don't really get it. You know, I don't really understand it all, but then I have to remember that that makes perfect sense. Like I'm a finite brain that's trying to understand something infinite. So why do we even discuss these things? Because it is powerful to understand Hashem as much as we can. So we'll go, we'll take it to the end. Like, well, sorry, I just keep on having hair in my face. Um, we'll understand Hashem as much as we can. So we don't say like, oh, I'll never be able, I'll never be able to understand him. So why bother? That's not the approach that we want to take. Our approach is we're going to learn, we're going to talk about all the things as much as we can. And when we hit a place where we're like, whoa, that makes no sense. Then we say, okay, now I have faith. 
right? And that place will be different for, for everybody. Everyone hits the wall at a different point and different things make sense to different people. That's why we'll give a lot of different parables and explanations because different things will help different people's brain process this information in a way that makes sense to them. So the reason why I'm prefacing that right now, especially is because this chapter and next chapter, especially I'm going to be talking about the non-duality of Hashem, this concept of non-duality, which we're going to get into. And it's big, okay? And remember, we are just touching upon it. We are not delving into it. That is, Tanya's, remember, Tanya is an instructional book. Tanya is practical. Tanya, we want to assimilate Tanya into our daily lives. So when we learn these deeper, uh, more esoteric concepts, it's only because it's the end goal of enhancing our relationship with Hashem in a practical way. So that's why we're not going to delve into these things in a, in a major philosophical way, because that's not the goal of this book. There are other Hasidic works for that, just to delve into the esoteric inner dimensions of God and the world. Like there are, there is room for that and place for that. And there's tons of books for that. But Tanya is practical. It's instructional. And we will bring in some of these concepts only to enhance what we're trying to learn in connection to our service of Hashem. Does that make sense? Yeah, you're with me. Okay. So here we go. Chapter 18, two weeks ago, chapter 18, we began to explain how service how serving Hashem is very much within reach. Remember, we talked about kikar of halacha, kikar velacha hadavar me'od, the service of Hashem is with very much within our reach, right? And how did we say that? We based it on the concept that, remember, we have an inherited love that is um, uh, built in to our soul, that comes from our forefathers, right? And that makes um, that makes the service of Hashem very near because we have this inherited love. Okay. Now, um, non-duality of Hashem, the non-duality of Hashem. Does that help? We're not talking about the duality of Hashem. We're talking about the non-duality that He's one. Why do we need to talk about duality when Hashem is one? We're talking about, we're going to talk about the fact that Hashem is one. That's what we're going to focus on. If you have a question at the end about this, let me know, because I, I understand that it, it wasn't very clear. Um, so that was what we introduced in chapter 18. But chapter 19, we learned that even though, right, this love is dormant, right? This love is a dormant love. It will surface even in the most sinful Jews, when faced with a test of faith, like convert or die, okay? So when a Jew is faced with an extreme test of faith, it is very possible and probable that this dormant love will be awakened and um, it will kick in and the, and, and uh, even a non-practicing, non-observing, or even sinful Jew will give their life over for Hashem. Okay, so that was not chapter 18, that was chapter 19. We, however, we still have our, our original question from chapter 18 unanswered. 
Okay. Yes, we went into a lot of different things in chapters 18 and 19, and we understand where this love comes from, and we understand why it's an inheritance, right? And we understand so many things about this love, but our main question is still and is not answered. What's the main question? If our dormant love only surfaces in an extreme test of faith, how does that make our worship very close? Right? We're saying our work, the proof that our worship is very, our, our service of Hashem could be very close is because we have this dormant love. Then we go on to say, well, this dormant love is activated in an extreme test of faith. We're not living our life that way. We don't live our life in a way that's an extreme test of faith every minute of our day. So how does the dormant love equal our, our service is close to, our service is very near, right? We still have the original question, okay, good? Okay, so to answer this question, which is the Tanya's favorite thing to do, we have to understand, we have to get a little bit of a crash course um, in the higher, Conscious, consciousness. Okay. So we're going to take a little detour and we're going to start to delve into um, understanding the higher conscious, consciousness. I don't know why I can't say that word and the non duality of Hashem. And that is going to be a little bit of a digression. Probably for the next, I think it's the next four chapters. Okay. The next four chapters, this is what we're doing. So that means we're not going to get an answer to our question till chapter 25. I will keep reminding you what our question is. So we don't lose track because we can get so focused and involved in this really deep concepts that we can forget why we're here to begin with. So I will keep on trying to remind you to, um, bring focus to why we're talking about this to begin with. But remember, it's going to take a couple chapters till we actually get the direct answer to our question. Okay. So um, what are we going to be talking about these next four chapters? We're going to be talking about the concept that's referred to as the non-dual idea that everyone and everything manifests God. Okay. So here we go. The first two commandments, the 10 commandments, we just read them on Shavuos, very apropos. The first two commandments are actually known to include the whole Torah. Okay. Why? Because the first commandment, I am God, your God, right? Includes the 248 positive mitzvahs that we have, right? It's in the positive. I am your God, your God, right? So in that commandment includes all the 248 positive commandments. The second commandment is you shall not serve any other, you shall not serve any other God. You shall not serve any idols. Okay. That includes the 365 prohibitions of the Torah. Okay. So all the mitzvahs, all the commandments are in essence an affirmation of the monotheism of God and the rejection of idolatry. Okay? So in these two commandments includes all the mitzvahs because in the essence, what are mitzvahs? Mitzvahs are accepting Hashem and not accepting any other God. So within these first two commandments are the whole Torah. And that's why 
we only needed to hear the first two commandments directly from Hashem, right? We said, I think we mentioned it before that, or maybe it's later in Tanya, I don't remember. I teach two Tanya classes simultaneously. So sometimes I forget, I forget who I share with what and what chapter things are in. But um, Hashem spoke with his own mouth, his own words, right? Figuratively, um, the first, we heard the first two commandments directly from God, right? Why? Because after the first one, we died and Hashem revived us. After the second one, we died, Hashem revived us. It was too much. We couldn't handle it. Another way to look at it is that we only needed to hear the first two commandments from Hashem because that included everything. The rest is just commentary, right? So the first two commandments that, that encompass the, the, the essence of what we're doing, the essence of us being a Jew and connected to Hashem, we heard directly from Hashem. The rest, Moshe said, but it was okay because it, it's all, anyways, a uh, 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 continuation of the first two commandments, okay? So, um, the, and the, so what are these two commandments? The two themes are, we accept one God and we do not worship idols, Okay. And every mitzvah, like I said before, every mitzvah at its core is a rejection of idol worship. Yeah, you're with me so far? Makes sense, right? If you think about what a mitzvah is, it makes total sense that that's what we're doing when we do a mitzvah. We are literally proclaiming that there is one God, we're connecting with him, and there is no such thing as another entity or power of creation, okay? So over the next two chapters, we're going to go a little bit deeper. Okay, we, remember we have a, a four chapter uh, section and then within that four chapters in the next two chapters, which I said, remember, they're very connected, chapters 21 and 22, we're going to really get a little deeper into the concept of God's non-duality, the fact that God is one. And not only that God is one, actually, there's no really existence outside of Hashem. The non-duality of Hashem means there's actually no existence outside of God. Mind-blowing, because it's very hard to come to terms with that when we are existing, right? So here we're going to try to pick that apart and understand that as much as we can, okay? So um, one of the most... Any questions so far? Okay. One of the most significant contributions of the Kabbalah um, is the idea of the, the way we understand um, mo the monotheistic idea. The way that monotheism is explained in the Kabbalah is kind of revolutionary, okay? Um, so it, you, before the Kabbalah came along, it was common that you believe in one God um, and you reject other deities, right? You, you, don't, you reject other deities, but Kabbalah comes along and it's not only that you reject other deities, it's that you deny the existence that there are any other deities outside of God, right? It's not like, oh, we believe in one God and we reject everything else. The Kabbalah comes along and tells us, no, Nothing else exists. You can't, you know, it's like, it's much more than just rejecting the fact that there's other gods. There, there is no such thing. There's no such thing as anything else existing outside of Hashem. And I want to read from you directly from um, the Practical Tanya, which is such a wonderful source. Um, I want to read from you what Rab Moshe Card Cardovero, Card 
I don't know, Mamersha Cardevero, I think that's how you say it, um, explains in the Kabbalah of what um, this idea of monotheism is. Okay, I'm going to read directly. I'm going to quote. So he says, before anything was emanated, there was only the infinite one, Ein Sof. Okay, I'm submitting someone, okay. Which was all that existed. And even after he brought into being everything which exists, there is nothing but him. And you cannot find anything that exists apart from him, God forbid, for nothing exists devoid of God's power. For if there were, he would be limited and subject to duality, God forbid. Rather, God is everything that exists, but everything that exists is not God. Nothing is devoid of his holiness. Everything is within it. There is nothing but it. Okay. Do I need to, should I read it again? Or you're good. You got it. Basically, what we're saying here is that um, nothing to say that there is cre that the world or is that the creation of the world or this world is a separate sum, sum, substance from Hashem implies that there's duality, implies that there's things outside of God. So if we were to believe, if we were to go about our life thinking that this world is a separate existence from Hashem, what we're saying is that God is limited, he's infinite, and there's th there's, he's finite, and there's things that exist outside of him. Okay, um, and that if you if we understand God and His infinity and understand that He is one, that doesn't jive. Okay, so um, there are two types of existence. There is divine, and there's non-divine. Okay, um, in the non-dual version of what we're trying to understand, there is only one existence that Hashem is everything. Hashem is everything and um, everything is absorbed within him. Okay. So listen, it's a very, very subtle concept and it's, it's a little bit hard to grasp. It's a little bit like floaty, but and then, like I said before, in the second book of Tanya, it definitely goes more into this, but we're going to just touch upon it briefly. But what we're saying is that God was one before creation, and he's the same one after creation. Just because he created the world doesn't change the oneness of his existence. Okay? So yes, before there was a world, there was one God. But guess what? After there was a world, there's also only one God, and there's also there's also nothing but God, right? Before the world, there was nothing but God, and after the world, there was nothing but God. Now we have to figure out how we, we reconcile that and how that makes sense. But to say that after Hashem created the world, now it means that there's duality. Now it means there's other things that exist outside of God. Would it make sense? Okay, so obviously the world does exist. Okay. 
And even in the non-dual concept, even what we're talking about with, with this non-dual concept, we are not saying that we're an illusion. We're not saying that we're just an illusion. We don't exist. The world does exist. But what we're saying is, is that we just see it as the universe, but it's sub, it's, it's like, um, what's the word I want to use? It's like intertwined with God. It's like submerged in God. Okay. Um, it's not a separate entity. So yes, the world exists. Yes, Hashem is the only thing that does exist. And the world that exists, the thing, the, the thing that we're living, the things that we see is not an illusion, but it is part and parcel of God. We are submerged and in, intertwined. And um, ugh, there's the word that I'm missing, um, but whatever. I hope you get the idea that is makes us one with God makes the world not a separate existence. Okay. So, um, creation did not produce an entity outside of Hashem just because their world was created. Doesn't mean it's an entity outside of God. It's an entity in within God. Okay. So, um, one second here. So neither the creation of this world or the, even the spirit we're, we're talking, even the spiritual worlds fall into the same category, even the spiritual worlds that we can't um, fathom or touch and feel is still a, a creation out, uh, you know, it's a creation. So not this world and not the spiritual worlds brought any change in Hashem's non-duality. Okay. Um, just as he was one before he's one after. Okay. That's really the main point that we want to hone in on, right? Nothing changed about God after he created the world. Okay. So now we're like, yeah, very nice. Yeah. Okay. Whatever you're saying this, Atanya saying this, Kabbalah saying this, but if the world does exist, how could we say that Hashem is only and singular and, and has exclusive existence. Like, how does that work? Like, we're saying that the world exists. We're saying we're not an illusion. And we're saying Hashem is still the only thing that was before and after creation. What does that mean? I don't, like, we don't understand that. Like, what are you trying to say here, right? And how do you reconcile this? And what, you know, what we learn in this chapter and which we will continue on next chapter is that it makes sense because everything in Hashem's presence is considered insignificant, right? To us, we are a thing. We are an existence outside of God. We have a life. We make our choices, all those things. But to God, we're insignificant, not insignificant in, the, in that we don't matter, but insignificant in the sense that it's all part of him. It's all part of him. So the world does exist, but in Hashem's presence, it has no independent identity, okay? It's part of God's existence. So it's like looking at an extension of yourself. So to us, we don't see that. We don't see that part. But to God, when he's looking at his world and he's looking at his creations, it's a part of him. 
It's not separate from him. Okay. So it's important for understanding the non-dual existence of Hashem. We have to understand that the idea of the creation of the world is, is um, done through a process of something from nothing. Okay. And that process of something from nothing is an ongoing process. Okay. So you've heard of like ex nihilo, right? The world didn't exist and then it existed. It's called yeshma ayin, right? Something from nothing. And not only is this world something from nothing, in order for the world to keep existing, it has to constantly be recreated. This is why I didn't want to skip over these chapters because they're such fascinating concepts that even though they might not feel practical, it changes your perspective on the world. So yes, we a lot of us know our, our, and are exposed to Hasidus and know that the world has to constantly be created. And if God wasn't constantly recreating the world, we would cease to exist. Okay? That is not such a, a foreign concept. But when you think about that, when you think about the fact that here we are as, as an existence, and if God for one split second decided we shouldn't exist, we wouldn't exist. This concept of something from nothing, we don't self-perpetuate. We cannot exist unless God is completely recreating us at any given moment, okay? So Hashem has to constantly continue to will us to exist, okay? and into being, otherwise we revert to nothingness. Our, our default mode is to be consumed by God. It's con be con to, to, to reattach to and re reconsume by God, kind of like what we spoke about last time with the flame, right? Why is the flame always moving upward? Because it wants us to reattach to its source. So same with us. If God would cease to will us to exist, we would be absorbed by the infinite godliness. And we wouldn't exist in a way that we feel that, like in a physical way that we feel that we exist. Okay. So um, now there's a really, really great example. If anyone, if it helps for anyone to bring science into it, because sometimes these concepts are so abstract, but then when it when science tells us it, then all of a sudden it makes sense, right? So let's give an example of how this could make sense scientifically, right? So we're gonna give an example of a stone, okay? Chabad discourses often illustrate this idea with the analogy of a stone being thrown into the air, okay? So here we are, where we have a stone that we're thrown into an air. In order for the stone to continue to ascent, right, and counteract the gravitational pull downwards, right, the stone requires kinetic energy. And it requires the continual supply of kinetic energy that is provided by the thrust of the hand, right? And however strong your throw is, that's how much kinetic energy is put into the rock. And that's how long or far the rock will ascend. And then as soon as that kinetic energy is used up, it falls downward. Then gravity comes into play and it falls downward, right? So depending on 
you know, if you're a pro football player or you're an eight-year-old kid, your thrust, your kinetic energy is going to be different. And that ball will stay up in the air just as long as that kinetic energy keeps it up there, right? And as soon as the kinetic energy is used up, it falls because gravity kicks in, right? So as soon as that energy is exhausted, the stone falls, right? So that makes sense, right? So the motion of the rock is basically an analogy um, for the existence of the world. How, right? If God's creative input would cease to exist, the world's existence would revert to its natural state of nothingness, right? So as long as God is putting kinetic energy into our existence, then we exist. When, if and when that kinetic energy runs out, if and when God decides to say, I don't will you to exist anymore, then it reverts to nothingness, which is its natural state. Our natural state is nothingness. We exist because God wills us to exist. So in order to exist, God constantly needs to be putting in that energy, just like the rock. In order for the rock to stay afloat, it needs energy. When the energy runs out, it doesn't, it falls, okay? So this is very, very, very crucial because when we understand the need for this constant sustaining force that the world needs to be, to exist, it kind of shows us how fragile the existence of all matter is. It's all in the split second of God willing us to exist or not. So that makes all matter pretty fragile, right? Even the strongest, most indestructible thing is only here at the will of God. So when we understand how fragile our existence is, and that if God would cease to will us to exist, we would revert to nothingness, it's pretty powerful. And it helps us reconcile and come to terms with the fact that we really are just an expression of God. Because when God isn't willing us to exist, we just revert right back into his, into him. Okay. So back to the rock, if our analogy we're taking, we're going to take the analogy a step further. Are we good so far? Any questions that came up with this analogy or anything that we've spoken about yet? Okay. So let's take analogy one step further. The rock in our analogy, when it's flying in the air, doesn't change its substance or its character, right? It hasn't become a new species. It hasn't become a flying rock, right? It's not a flying rock. It's a rock that's flying because of its kinetic energy, but then it will cease to fly, right? It's a rock that happens to be flying due to the acquired quality of kinetic motion, right? Because of the kinetic motion, it's a rock that happens to be flying, right? So this is what ongoing creation teaches us, right? When we, when we understand this concept of ongoing creation, creation didn't just happen once. We think that the world was created in six days and the seventh day we rest, and that was creation. What we don't think about and realize is that it's not a thing that happened and is done. 
creation is ongoing. We don't talk about that enough. We don't understand. We don't think about that enough. We just think that we take it. We take for granted the fact that that where we exist, right? But we actually are an ongoing creation that teaches us that even when the world does enjoy its existence, right? The and we feel like we're a separate existence, right? We feel like we're a separate existence. That existence is really just an acquired property. It's not an inherent one. The inherent property of the world is to, is to be nothing, right? It's an acquired property of the world that it exists. And the fact that it, it's enjoying its existence while it exists, and the fact that we sometimes think that we are separate existences doesn't change the property of the existence. Just like the property of the rock flying in the air doesn't make it a flying rock, just because a world exists doesn't make it a separate entity. Yes? Okay. So... Um, In, so just like the rock soars upwards, right? And it's natural, the natural tendency of the rock is to fall downward. So too, the world's um, natural tendency, it tends towards self-annihilation and reabsorption, right? Back into its divine source. Um, and when we are existing, it's an acquired existence and it's acquired property. It's not an inherent property. Okay. So this, this apparent, like, how do I put this? Like this phenomenon, this phenomenon that we have, that the world is an independent existence is in fact just a dynamically sustained creation that needs constant creative drive, okay? We think that the world exists on its own and we think that there's this phenomenon that the world has its own existence, right? It's independent, but really, the world has to be dynamically sustained, just like a rock has to be dynamically sustained to stay in the air. The world has to be dynamically sustained. How? By the constant creative force, the constant creative drive that Hashem puts into it. That's the only way the world exists. So the inherent property of the world is to be nothing self-annihilation, to be reabsorbed into the, its divine source. That's the natural tendency of the world. The fact that the world exists is only because there's an, there's an acquired energy and drive willing it to be so. Okay? So that wraps up chapter 21. Okay? So what are we doing here, right? Remember, I'm going to remind you, what's our question? Okay? Our question is, how can service of Hashem be very near to us if this love that we got as an inheritance is dormant, right? And we said, okay, we need to answer that question. But before we answer that question, we must understand a little bit more of an inner consciousness of how the world works and how Hashem works. We need to understand the non-duality nature of God. 
We need to understand that nothing actually exists outside of God. And helping us understand that is the, the concept of the world inherent property is not independence. The only reason why the world exists is that it's being constantly created and having a kinetic force given by God. And, and that is constantly being re recreated. And if God would cease to will the world to exist, it would revert to its nothingness, nothingness and be reabsorbed into the divine source, which means it was never separate from the divine source to begin with. Okay, that's where we leave off in chapter 21. So chapter, I mean, chapter 20, sorry. That's where we leave off chapter 20. Chapter 21 is gonna continue this idea of, non, of the non-dualism of God, okay? So like even in the chapter 21, it's like non-dual Judaism one and non-dual Judaism two. Like it's really a continuation. But I think we did well by... It's already 1140. We'll do a meditation. We'll absorb these concepts and we won't stuff in another chapter just because we need to, because we don't, we're not in a rush. So before we um, get into our meditation, are there any questions, anything come up for you? Even from last class, I feel like I didn't have a lot of time last class to really delve into questions. So if something from last class was like, whoa, that was too fast and it was a lot of stuff and I'm overwhelmed by it. Please, 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 please like talk to me about that. And we, and I want you to have a clear understanding of, of where we are. Okay. Okay. So, um, we'll go into our meditation. If there's no questions, if after you meditate on these concepts and something comes up for you, we will have time for that as well. Okay. So here we go. Get comfortable. Do not close your eyes while you're driving, Devora. <laughs> Just meditate in your head. Um, Don't worry, I'm not driving anymore. <laughs> okay. All right. Focus on your breath. Deep breath in, in through your nose out through your mouth. I want you to focus on your breath, on the natural rhythm of your breath. Don't worry about what your brain's doing right now. Just focus on the deep breath in and the deep breath out. Any tension that you might be storing in your body, and I think it's safe to say that we all do that. We all have a place where we store our tension. Kind of feel like if you can find that spot, if you are feeling tightness anywhere, discomfort anywhere, zone in on that spot and just visualize that tension or that tightness or that an uncomfortable feeling, just imagine that melting away. You can imagine even like a bright sunny light just beaming into your body and like melting away any tension that you might be storing.
Okay. Hopefully we're feeling a little bit more loose and open and let's focus on a few points that we um, can think about and go home with. Okay. In Hasidus, believing in one God doesn't just mean you reject the notion of other gods. It means you appreciate that God is non-dual. There is no independent existence outside of God. So it's not just that we reject the idea of other gods. We believe that there is no independent existence outside of Hashem. Okay. Let that think about that for a minute. How does it make you feel? What does it bring up for you? Okay, and this is the real point that I want you to, to bring home with you. It's not true that the world doesn't exist at all. It just doesn't exist outside of God. If you were God, you wouldn't see a separate world. You would just see yourself. Okay, and I think that's very powerful. And I think that's how we're going to be able to reconcile this in our brain. It's not that we're saying the world doesn't exist. We're just saying the world doesn't exist outside of God. And if you were God, you wouldn't see a world, you would just see yourself. That is powerful, okay? Sit with that for a minute. I feel like that helps us absorb this information a little bit, even though we don't understand it completely. I feel like this concept is something our brain can handle. We exist, we just don't exist outside of God. When God looks at us, he sees himself. Bring your attention back to your breath. Okay, so now it means that you let your mind go and you focus on your breath. Couple more deep breaths in through your nose, out through your mouth. Start to become more aware of some sight, some senses, some smells, some sounds around you. And when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes. No rush. Okay. Okay, question, is that like when you look at our children and their success or failures, we see ourselves? I think that's, yes, I think that can help us understand this. Like, it's so true that sometimes when we look at our children, we see them as an extension of ourselves because they are, but like times up by a hundred, right? Like take that and then like even a thousand times more, right? So that's a really good like jumping off point. Like, wow, when I see my kid, I actually see myself. You see yourself inside your kid, right? But with God, he doesn't see anything but himself, right? Our kids are separate existences from us. But with God, it's, it's even more than that. 
Okay. I was thinking about an artist who sees their art as an extension of themselves and another way to help us understand. Yes. And another amazing point, right? An artist who's putting his deepest emotions onto a canvas, that is an extension of themselves, right? I think the subtle difference is that extension of ourselves and how God sees it as is himself, right? So all these ideas and all these examples are amazing jumping off points to help our finite brain understand what that means in an infinite way. So you take that finite understanding and then you make it infinite, right? And that's a really great way for our finite brain to be able to sort of come to terms with an infinite concept. Yeah? Okay. Um, okay. So beautiful. Thank you guys for showing up, my diehards. Um, I think I want to discuss with you maybe next class what we want to do about the summer. I'm not going to make this an Instagram thing because 500 people answer the poll, but nobody, they don't count because they don't actually come to the class. It only matters to the people who are here. So um, start thinking about what makes sense for you for the summer. Does it make sense to take a break and then restart, you know, at the start of the school year? Or do you think continuation through the summer makes sense? I can see it going either way. I would like to hear your feedback. So start to think about that. It's not a rush. We, I still definitely want to go a couple more weeks um, for sure, for sure. But um, just start thinking about what makes sense for you um, and we can come to a decision together. All right. Everyone have an awesome week. I will 